Good morning. My name is Pastor John. I'm the associate pastor here at East Shore, and I'm so glad that you've joined us today. Today, the first question I want to ask you is, have you ever done a trust fall? Have you ever done a trust fall? If you don't know what that is, there's kind of a picture there. The idea is that you stand somewhere, you cross your arms, and then you fall back either into the waiting arms of a friend or perhaps a group of friends. And doing it is a very terrifying experience, but it's also extremely satisfying as long as your friends catch you when you fall. And that's kind of the point. You kind of already have to trust the people who are behind you in order to fall backwards. So just for fun, think in your head, what family member or what friends would you want behind you to catch you if you were doing a trust fall? Are there any friends of yours you would not want behind you if you were doing that? But let me ask you this. Would you trust God to catch you if you were doing that? Now, now, if you believe in God, you probably think, well, I mean, of course I, I would. He's God. He can do anything. But my question to you was not, do you trust it, that he can catch you? My question is, do you trust him to catch you? Would you trust him with what you're going through today? Do you trust him to provide for your needs? Do you trust him to be the place of refuge and safety that you desire when times are hard? Today we're going to return to the book of Joshua, and we're going to look at two chapters that if we were reading through, we might be tempted to skim over or skip over, but they tell us a lot about the trustworthy character of the one true God. So if you're not already there, I'd ask you to turn your Bibles to the book of Joshua, chapters 20 and 21. If you'd like to use that red Bible that's in the seat back in front of you, you should find it on pages 127 and 128. Now, to start this morning, we're just going to read in chapter 21, verses 43 through 45. Joshua 21, big 21, little 43 through 45. Once you were there, I'd ask you to please stand to honor the reading of God's Word, and then follow along as I read our passage for today. Remember, right now I'm just reading chapter 21, 43 through 45, and I'll be reading from the English Standard Version. Verse 43. Thus the Lord gave to Israel all the land that he swore to give to their fathers, and they took possession of it, and they settled there. And the Lord gave them rest on every side, just as he had sworn to their fathers. Not one of all their enemies had withstood them, for the Lord had given all their enemies into their hands." Not one word of all the good promises that the Lord had made to the house of Israel had failed. All came to pass. Let's pray. Lord, as we come to your word, we're once again reminded of our need for you. As we talk about how trustworthy you are, God, May you be our focus this morning. May we turn our eyes from ourselves and on to you. God, my prayer is that the words I would say would be a reflection of what John the Baptist said, that you would increase and that I would decrease. Lord, may what we say here today help us to understand that you and you alone are our refuge. Teach us that you and you alone are our provider and show us that you are trustworthy. Lead us to trust in you and to trust in your Son, Jesus Christ. It's in his name that I pray. Amen. You may be seated. 
So let's consider again where we are in Scripture. We are in the book of Joshua. This is a book about God fulfilling his promises to his people, the Israelites. He's fulfilling his promises by giving them a land of their own. We're at a part of the Bible where God's now using a man named Joshua to guide his people into the promised land. Joshua and the Israelites enter the land. They defeat 31 kings and they conquer the promised land. And finally, this land has rest from war. The last time we were in Joshua, about two weeks ago, we looked at chapters 13 through 19. And those chapters talked about the distribution, the dividing, the allotment of this land among the 12 tribes of Israel. We saw God's faithfulness in giving his people a real land of their own. We talked about faithful followers among the Israelites and how they lived for their Lord. However, we also saw that there were some signs of trouble that would eventually distract and derail God's people from their purpose. They were meant to live in close communion with the Lord, but their pursuit of other gods would lead them to lose the promised land. Well, today we're looking at two more chapters that are talking about this distribution of the land, but these chapters are a little different. The 12 tribes have already received their land, but there are still a few things for the people to take care of. Before this work of dividing the land is complete, there are some special cities that need to be assigned. And so as we look at these special cities, we're going to learn at least three truths about the character of God. The first truth that these chapters reveal is that God is our refuge. God is our refuge. I'm going to read chapter 20 now. Chapter 20, verse 1, Then the Lord said to Joshua, Say to the people of Israel, Appoint the cities of refuge, of which I spoke to you through Moses, that the manslayer who strikes any person without intent or unknowingly may flee there. They shall be for you a refuge from the avenger of blood. He shall flee to one of these cities and shall stand at the entrance of the gate of the city and explain his case to the elders of that city. Then they shall take him into the city and give him a place, and he shall remain with them. And if the avenger of blood pursues him, they shall not give the manslayer into his hand, because he struck his neighbor unknowingly and did not hate him in the past. He shall remain in that city until he has stood before the congregation for judgment, until the death of him who is high priest at the time. Then the manslayer may return to his own town and to his own home, to the town from which he fled." Verse 7, so they, the Israelites, they set apart Kadesh in Galilee in the hill country of Naphtali, Shechem in the hill country of Ephraim, and Kiriath Arba, that is Hebron, in the hill country of Judah. Beyond the Jordan, east of the Jericho, they appointed Bezer in the wilderness of the tableland from the tribe of Reuben, Ramoth in Gilead from the tribe of Gad, and Golan in Bashan from the tribe of Manasseh. These were the cities designated for all the people of Israel. And for the stranger, or the foreigner, the alien, sojourning among them, that anyone who killed a person without intent could flee there, so that he might not die by the hand of the avenger of blood, till he stood before the congregation. In this passage, Joshua tells the Israelites to appoint, to designate cities of refuge in the promised land. And God had spoke to Moses about these cities. If you want to read more detail about them, you can look at Numbers 35. What's going on here is that in the custom of the time, in the ancient world, in the ancient Middle East, when someone was killed for any reason, his relatives were expected 
to avenge his death. And it didn't matter if it was an accident or not. The attitude of the culture was that the deceased person's relatives would try to kill the manslayer. They had a right and responsibility to seek justice for their loved one. And these relatives were known as the avenger of blood or the one seeking revenge. Now, of course, that doesn't happen today, but we see a form of it. If you've ever watched a kind of murder trial, normally the victim's family is there in the courtroom every day. And they're there because they're seeking justice for their loved one. And so while rushing out and killing someone is extreme in our time, that quest for justice is not. We want to see wrongs righted. We want to see those who hurt us, our loved ones, brought to justice. And God knew that his people would have this desire for justice because he himself is a just God. Isaiah 30, verse 18, is a reminder to God's people that the Lord longs to be gracious to you. Therefore, he will rise up. He will show you compassion or mercy. For the Lord is a God of justice. Blessed are all who wait for him. He's not only a God of justice, he's also a God of grace and mercy. And these, this verse here from Isaiah, it's a wonderful example about how closely tied together God's justice and his mercy really are. Now, in our human weakness and our limitation, we try to emphasize one or the other. We want to separate those two. We want to either talk about justice or talk about mercy. But God is both, and he is perfectly both. So with that in mind, God's law is clear. A murderer should be caught and punished for his crime. But what would happen if someone unknowingly or unintentionally or accidentally killed someone? Where could these accidental killers go to be safe from the vengeful relatives? And the answer is what we read here, a city of refuge. From our perspective here on earth, accidents are going to happen in a fallen world. It was true for ancient Israel and it's true today. The curse of mankind's sin against God is death, and that includes unexpected and accidental death. And since Israelites would die in accidents, God planned these cities, and he planned for them almost as soon as he led his people out of slavery in Egypt. Back in Exodus 21, so they're just out of Egypt. God says, whoever strikes a man so that he dies shall be put to death. But if he did not lie in wait for him, it was an accident, it was unintentional, God let him fall into his hand, then God says, I will appoint for you a place to which he may flee. In our text today, is that happening? It's that appointing of those cities. God sets aside six cities. You can kind of see some on a map here. Three are on the west side of the Jordan River and three are on the east side. And these cities are spread out throughout the promised land. And the goal seems to be that any Israelite could get to one of these cities in less than a day of travel. Now, as we also read through the chapter, we saw there's a very specific process for an accidental killer and a very specific process these cities of refuge are to follow. A professor I had on this, Dr. Michael Smith, he summarized these regulations in six points. So let's read them. The first is the killing had to be an accident, not premeditated. The person had to run to one of these cities immediately. The person had to remain in the boundary of the city to be safe. The statute of limitations was the death of the high priest. The law was in effect for the alien as well as the citizen of Israel. And the person could not pay a ransom 
instead of fleeing to a city of refuge. And this is actually a wonderful system of God's justice and grace. So it's kind of like an accused person today being placed in protective custody. God's plan ensures that innocents are kept safe, but it also guarantees that true justice will be done. If the person is guilty, there will be punishment. But if the death was truly an accident, then the one who caused it did not deserve to die, and the family did not need to cause more death. So let's go back and talk about this process a bit more. So first, as we said, it had to be an accident, an honest accident. Second, the accused had to run to one of those cities immediately if he or she wanted to be safe. Third, we see the safe zone is the walls of the city itself. The city was not responsible for what happened outside of its walls. It's like today, if a witness escapes from protective custody, that witness is probably going to be in danger. Fourth, the person had to stay in the city until the death of the high priest. Fifth, in God's grace, this same law did not just apply to Israelites, but to aliens or strangers, foreigners who resided or lived among God's people. This was a law and a protection for everyone in that land. And sixth, this was not something that you could buy your way out of. This was not a system that could be exploited. In every case, a trial occurred and the truth was sought out. It's the same principle that's basically codified in our system of law, that someone is innocent until they are proven guilty. The congregation and the assembly of leaders and elders in the city, they would judge the case and determine whether the killer should be punished or set free. And the whole point of these cities is to demonstrate God's loving concern for the innocent. He provides them with a place of safety. God protects his people. He did it in the Old Testament, and he does it today. A prophet in the Old Testament named Nahum, in Nahum 1.7, he says, the Lord is good, a stronghold in the day of trouble. He knows those who take refuge in him. The Lord is our refuge. Now, that does not mean that you will never experience trials or suffering, because of course we do. But it does mean that God will be with you in those trials. He will be protecting you, sustaining you in his way and according to his timing. Now, in our own sinfulness, there are many other sources of comfort and safety that we're tempted to turn to. Maybe for you, your home or your apartment, your, where you go is your place of refuge. Maybe your spouse or your parents are the ones that you depend on. Maybe you think that the government or your favorite political leaders are going to fix all of your problems. Perhaps you're someone who strives as hard as you can to be self-sufficient and you trust no one but yourself. Well, the author of Psalm 118 verse 8 wisely recognizes that it is better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in man. It's kind of a fun visual picture of that verse. What's also interesting is the very next verse after it, I don't have a slide for it, but Psalm 118 verse 9 says it is better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in princes, in princes and the leaders among humans. Because any human source of refuge, rescue, or comfort, it's going to be imperfect. If you always trust in a person, 
that person is going to let you down. But, but God never fails. So hope in him, my friends. That is the better way to go. This psalmist practiced it, and the famous King David practiced it as well. He prayed this in 2 Samuel. He said, The Lord is my rock and my fortress and my deliverer, my God, my rock, in whom I take refuge. There's that word. My shield and the horn of my salvation, my stronghold and my refuge, my Savior. You save me from violence. I call upon the Lord who is worthy to be praised and I am saved from my enemies. However, I'm I'm aware that there may be some of us here who maybe you feel like God's not really being your refuge right now. Maybe you're in a situation and you feel lost or you feel unprotected. Here's uh, an illustration, something to think about. Next week is the International Day of Prayer for the Persecuted Church. We're going to talk a little bit about it. We might have a video during the service about it. Because many of our brothers and sisters in Christ around the world experience real persecution. I'm not talking about inconveniences. I'm not talking about being made fun of or the loss of friendships. I'm talking about things like prison, torture, and death. When our brothers and sisters suffer like that for their faith, is, has God stopped being their refuge in that moment? Has God abandoned them? Well, no. They may suffer. They may even die. But God is guarding their spirits. And he is standing ready to encourage them or to take them home to be with him. And it's unlikely that anyone in this room is experiencing jail time, torture, or the threat of execution because of your faith. But you still may be struggling nonetheless. Maybe it's stress at work or frustrations in your marriage. Maybe it's an overabundance of schoolwork. Maybe you feel alone or unappreciated or perhaps forgotten. And the reason I brought up persecuted Christians is not to try to belittle or minimize whatever you're struggling with, but I'm telling you that because believers around the world and throughout the ages have found the Lord to be their refuge. Psalm 46.1 says that God is our refuge and strength, an ever-present help in trouble. So find shelter, brothers and sisters, in the only refuge that lasts. In our passage, we learn that God's not only our refuge. According to most of chapter 21, he is also our provider. God is our provider. Now, as you can see on your handout on the screen, this is the section is verses 1 through 42. I'm not going to read verses 1 through 42. I am going to read verses 1 through 3, and then I'm going to jump to the end of that, verse 41 and 42. So chapter 21, first verses 1 through 3. Then the heads of the fathers' houses of the Levites came to Eleazar the priest and to Joshua the son of Nun, and to the heads of the fathers' houses of the tribes of the people of Israel. They said to them, At Shiloh in the land of Canaan, The Lord commanded through Moses that we be given cities to dwell in, along with their pasture land for our livestock. So, by the command of the Lord, the people of Israel gave to the Levites the following cities and pasture lands out of their inheritance. And then if you jump to the end of that part, verses 41 and 42, the cities of the Levites in the midst of the possession of the people of Israel were in all 48 cities with their pasture lands. 
These cities each had its pasture lands around it. So it was with all these cities. Here we see the heads and leaders of one of the 12 tribes, the tribe of Levi. They come before Joshua, Eleazar, and the other leaders of the Israelites. And they ask for cities to live in and common pasture lands for their livestock. There were actually several verses in that long section we talked about the other week, chapters 13 through 19, that help explain why this is happening. Well, first, Joshua 13, 14 tells us to the tribe of Levi alone, Moses gave no inheritance. The offerings by fire to the Lord God of Israel are their inheritance, as he said to him. When the Israelites would bring sacrifices, what happened was a portion would be burned and a portion would be given as food to the priest. This was their special gift. They did not have land of their own. They couldn't get food elsewhere, but their brothers, when they came to the offering, would give them what they need. Later in that chapter, the bottom of the slide, the author adds, but to the tribe of Levi, Moses gave no inheritance. The Lord God of Israel is their inheritance, just as he said to them. The Levites had the blessing and the privilege of serving as the Lord's priest. They did not get their own land because they were in the Lord's service. And that meant as Levites, they could get physically closer to the Lord's presence on earth than any other Israelite. They had a special relationship with the Lord that more than made up for their lack of land. Joshua 14.4 explains what this looked like. It says, No portion was given to the Levites in the land, but only cities to dwell in, with their pasture lands for their livestock and their sustenance. That's what we see in our passage today, chapter 21. They're assigned cities to live in, but the land does not belong to them. And finally, 18.7 said, The Levites have no portion among you, for the priesthood of the Lord is their heritage. They didn't get any land because they got to be priest. And so instead, they lived in cities that were scattered throughout the promised land. Well, why did God do this? Why did he scatter the Levites? Well, first he did it because he said it, but secondly, there seems to be an implication that the Levites were to be teachers in the land. They were responsible for teaching their fellow Israelites God's law. By living in the midst of the Israelites, these Levites ensured that any person had access to someone who could teach them more about God and about his ways. So throughout chapter 21, the Israelites answer the Levites' request, and the text tells us that there are 48 cities given to these Levites. Six of them were the cities of refuge that we just talked about, and 42 others. And what's amazing about this is that the tribes voluntarily give these cities. They give these grants of land out of their inheritance. If you remember two weeks ago, we talked about our friend Caleb, and he sets the example for the other Israelites. If you look at chapter 21, verses 11 and 12, or you can look on the screen, they gave them Kiriath Arba, Arba being the father of Anak, that, that city is Hebron. It's in the hill country of Judah. They gave it along with the pasture lands around it. But the fields of the city, its villages, the outside, the suburbs, if you will, have been given to Caleb, the son of Jephunneh, as his possession. If you remember, we talked about Caleb worked very hard to take this city, to capture it. But almost as soon as he gets it, he passes most of it over to his Levite brothers and sisters. 
He knew that it was his responsibility to see that the priestly tribe was taken care of. The rest of chapter 21 talks about the distribution of the cities for these Levites. And this map kind of shows how it goes by clan. Different clans of the Levites get different cities. These clans had different responsibilities, different things they had to do in setting up the tabernacle, which was the place where God would meet with his people. The descendants of Aaron, the high priest, performed sacrifices and offered prayers. The other clans were each responsible for carrying part of the tabernacle, this tent, and setting it up. But what does this have to do with us today? Because a special tribe of priests does not exist among God's people here in the 21st century, really since Jesus. We do not have a tabernacle. We do not have a temple. We do not need someone to stand in our place before God. You might say, well, what about you, pastor? Well, look, I pray for you. I'm responsible to you before God, but I do not stand before God in your place. That's not my position and role. You'll notice when we do the Lord's Supper at the end of this service that I try to be very intentional to not stand in front of the, of the Lord's Supper table as much as possible. I try to be on one side or the other. And the reason why is because I'm trying to communicate that the Lord's Supper does not need to come through me. There's nothing special about me passing out the plates. We are on equal footing before God. No, I, I don't stand in your place. Pastors, leaders, elders, they don't stand in your place. But Jesus stood in your place by dying for our sins. What does that mean for us? That means that for every Christian, we are now a chosen people. Now every Christian is part of a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession. God called us into this so we may declare the praises of him who called us out of darkness into his wonderful light. That's 1 Peter 2, 9. Well, if that's true, there's no Levites, there's no special people like that, then what does this chapter have to do with us today? And the answer lies in what these cities represented. These cities were places of provision for the people of the tribe of Levi. The Levites did not have a land of their own, but they still needed to live. They still needed food and water and shelter. And unless their Israelite brothers and sisters gave them a place to live, they would be homeless and starving. This chapter is God providing for his priestly tribe, and it reminds us that God provides for us too. Pastor Rhett Dodson puts it this way, your heavenly father knows what you need, and God not only knows and is concerned about your needs, he doesn't just know, oh, I know you need this, he provides for them as well. So those who know God do not have to live in worry or fear, because God promises that he will provide for his people. Jesus would say the same thing in Matthew 6, 31 to 33. He says, therefore, do not be anxious. Do not say, what shall we eat? Or what shall we drink? Or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles, he means those who do not know God, the Gentiles seek after all these things. And your heavenly father knows that you need them all. So what does Jesus say to do? Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Our responsibility is to live for God first and foremost. We need to trust him to provide for our needs. And that is why the final truth that we learn from this passage is that God is trustworthy. God is trustworthy. 
Listen to verses 43 through 45 again. Thus the Lord gave to Israel all the land he swore to give to their fathers. They took possession of it and they settled there. And the Lord gave them rest on every side, just as he had sworn to their fathers. Not one of all their enemies had withstood them, for the Lord had given all their enemies into their hands. Not one word of all the good promises the Lord had made to the house of Israel had failed. All came to pass. The one true God can be trusted. These three verses are kind of a summary of this whole dividing the land part of the book, which takes up a large chunk of Joshua. But more than that, these verses are the theme of the entire book of Joshua. This book has many exciting stories that we love. They cross the Jordan River. There's battles like at places like Jericho. But the point of the book of Joshua is not Joshua fought the battle of Jericho. The point of the book of Joshua is that God has been faithful to his promises and he gave his people the promised land. If you have an attentive ear, every single sermon I preached on this, the beginning we talk about, let's talk about where we are in scripture. And the first thing I say is the book of Joshua is about God being faithful to his promise to give his people the promised land. That is the point of the book. And this verse tells us that it is. God proved himself trustworthy. The Lord is worthy of your trust. He has been faithful to his promises. And these three verses show us this in two ways. The first way in verse 43 is that God gave his people the promised land. After all, it's called the promised land because God promised it to the fathers and ancestors of the Israelites. Starts in places like Genesis 13, 14, and 15. The Lord said to Abram, who eventually became Abraham, lift up your eyes, look from the place where you are, northward, southward, eastward, and westward, for all the land that you see I will give to you and to your offspring. The very land the Israelites settled and dwelt in at the end of the book of Joshua is the land that Abraham saw all those years beforehand. But this promise wasn't just given to one man. God told Abraham's son, Isaac, that he should sojourn, live, travel in this land. I will be with you and bless you. For to you and to your offspring, I will give all these lands. I will establish the oath that I swore to Abraham, your father. So Isaac is also promised that his descendants will live in this land. And then his son and Abraham's grandson, Jacob, is told the same thing. The Lord stood and said, I am the Lord, the God of Abraham, your father, and the God of Isaac. The land on which you lie, I will give to you and to your offspring. But even then, God wasn't done promising because his people would hear his promise again when he used Moses to lead them out of Egypt. While they're still wandering in the wilderness for 40 years, God says this to them in Numbers 33, you will take possession of the land and live in it because i've given the land to you to possess this promise is repeated again and again throughout the first five books of the bible and our passage today is in joshua the sixth book of the bible and it tells us that this promise the promise that god made to abraham isaac jacob moses and the israelites this promise had now 
been fulfilled. The Israelites had taken possession of the land. They had settled into it. The second promise fulfilled by this trustworthy God is that they have rest all around them on every side. Not one of their enemies withstood them or could stand against them. That's what verse 44 tells us. God helped his people by delivering their enemies into their hands. And again, this was something God had already promised. Moses told the Israelites that God would do this in the book of Deuteronomy 7.24. He will give their kings into your hand. You shall make their name perish from under heaven. No one shall be able to stand against you until you have destroyed them. And that's exactly what we've seen happen in this book. If you've been participating in our study, the Israelites drove out, defeated all their major enemies in the land of Canaan. We've seen their enemies fleeing from before them. The spies that Joshua sent into the city of Jericho tell him, truly the Lord has given all the land into our hands. And also, all the inhabitants of the land melt away. They flee, they run away because of us. God's victory was so certain that his enemies melted away from his people in fear. Later, in Joshua 10.8, the Lord says, Do not fear them, for I have given them into your hands. Not a man of them shall stand before you. And if you remember Joshua 10, that battle ends with giant hailstones killing more enemies than Israelite soldiers. God was faithful in giving his people rest and victory. God swore these things. He swore that they would have the gift of the promised land and victory over the Canaanites. And to hear God say that he swore something, that's very serious. It's not like when you make plans to get together with someone, you say, hey, let's meet at this time, and you have a plan to meet at a restaurant or meet somewhere else to get together, but then something comes up. An unexpected thing pops up, and so you have to text your friend, hey, look, I'm sorry, something came up, can we reschedule? That's not swearing to something. You didn't make a firm commitment that you were going to be there. But when you go to a courthouse and you raise your right hand, and say or are asked to say, I solemnly swear to tell the whole truth and nothing but the truth, well, that's the kind of swearing that we're talking about here. God made a commitment under oath to himself that he would bring his people into the promised land. And that's what he did. And so that last verse, verse 45, is the conclusion. And I love how emphatic it is. Not one word of those promises had failed. Not one word. Of all that God promised, nothing was left unfulfilled. All the good things that he promised came true. The family of Israel received every one of God's blessings. Everything was fulfilled. Joshua himself will use some similar words. We'll talk about this passage in a few weeks. He addresses the Israelite leaders in Joshua 23. He says, now I'm about to go the way of all the earth. I'm about to die. But you know in your hearts and souls, all of you, that not one word has failed of all the good things that the Lord your God promised concerning you. All have come to pass for you. Not one of them has failed. Every Israelite had heard God's promises and now every Israelite had seen them fulfilled. Have you experienced that in your life? Because when you see God be faithful to his promises, your trust 
in him grows. I heard a story the other week. This is a story, but uh, a made-up story, but I thought it was very uh, powerfully put together and probably based on a true situation. There was an older, more experienced Christian who was talking to a younger, less mature believer. They were about to do a ministry thing together, and the older Christian expressed great confidence that God would bless their new ministry. And the younger believer said, wow, you have more faith than I do. To which that wise old Christian replied, no, no, it's not that I have more faith. I have more experience with my faithful God. I have more experience with my faithful God. Because a trustworthy God can be depended on. And the more we see him fulfill his word in our lives, the more our faith and trust in him will grow. So what does this mean for us today? If God is trustworthy, so what, Pastor? What does that have to do with me today when I leave here? Well, a trustworthy God is one who can be believed to do what he says that he will do. He will be faithful to what he has promised in his word. And you know, God's word is full of promises that can be trusted. So I'd like to end our time together by just talking about a few of those promises. An example of one, in Hebrews 13, 5, the author uses some of God's words from the book of Deuteronomy and says that God said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. I will never leave you nor forsake you. And that means that if you know God, if you have a relationship with him, then you are never truly alone. Even when you feel abandoned by your family and your friends, even then, the Lord is still with you. Even then, God's children can run to him and run to their loving Heavenly Father. He does not reject his own, and he will be with you through every trial and every struggle. You can trust him to be with you. Another promise that God makes in his word is found in 1 Corinthians 10, 13. He says, no, this is Paul speaking about God, no temptation has overtaken you except such as common to man. Everyone experiences temptation, but God is faithful and God will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able. But with the temptation to sin, he will also make the way of escape that you may be able to bear it. This means that every Christian, everyone who genuinely has a relationship with Jesus Christ, has the ability to withstand temptation. They have the ability to resist sin. There is a way of escape for you, for that sin that so easily ensnares you. God here has promised you a way out. His Holy Spirit in you can give you victory. You may always struggle with that sin, but you never have to fall to it. God has promised his people a way of escape, and he will not fail to help them. You can trust him to help you too. The last promise I want to look at are some of Jesus' very last words to his disciples before he ascended into heaven. He said this, You will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. You shall be my witnesses, both in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria, and even to the remotest part of the earth or to the ends of the earth. God promised his followers that they would receive power from the Holy Spirit so that they could be his witnesses They could tell others about his good news to the ends of the earth. And so, believer, that means that you do not have to be scared of sharing the gospel, talking about God with others. 
Because God has promised here, he's promised that you will have the power to be a witness for him. And as we read, not one word of his promises have failed. So you can talk to that friend, and you can talk to that relative, you can talk to that acquaintance and neighbor about your faith in Jesus Christ. The trustworthy God has promised that you can. Well, those are just a handful, just three promises that God said he'd be faithful to fulfill. I encourage you to read his word. Trust him to be faithful to what he says. After all, God is our trustworthy refuge and provider. There is no other being like him. Which means I also have to ask, do you know him? Have you met this amazing trustworthy refuge? The only way to know God is through a relationship with his son, Jesus Christ. And that relationship can only be yours if you turn away from your sin and you turn toward him, toward Jesus, in faith and trust. What he did was he paid the penalty for your sin. He died in your place, and then he rose from the grave so that he could know his people. He could restore their relationship with God. Do you want to know that trustworthy refuge? If you do or you have questions about that, please talk to me after the service or talk to someone who you know is a follower of Christ about how you can have a relationship with him. Do not let opportunity or days go by. Seek out someone who can tell you about Jesus Christ. But if you're here and you do know Jesus, well, trust him to be faithful to his word. Depend on him alone as your refuge and your provider. Give him the glory and the praise for his faithfulness in your life. He alone deserves that praise because he alone is worthy.